Welcome in. Welcome back. We're going to continue our series on doubt and deconstruction. Let me pray for us as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. How can a young man make his way pure? By living by your word, Lord. And so we I thank you that we are a church that values and cherishes your word, and I pray that you would uh, help us continue to apply it to our lives and learn more and more um, from this rich text that you have so graciously given us uh, to become more like Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I've said before, this class is in some ways... Um, an elaboration on Jude 22, where it says, have mercy on those who doubt. My hope is that we can discuss the reality of doubt um, in the Christian life and equip you, even through, if, if you have, go through a season of doubt yourself, or how to care for those, how to have mercy on those who doubt. But also, it's an elaboration on the parable of the sower. Um, understanding the reality of friends or family who, who may deconvert. Um, or deconstruct their faith, as it's some say. Um, and we'll talk more about that passage in a couple weeks. I'm not trying to build doubt in you, but trying to help you if you've struggled with it, or um, help you help others with it. Maybe if you've never had it before, maybe you will someday. And uh, maybe some things from this class will be helpful. So hopefully you've had a chance to scan the code. Um, I'm going to keep going now. So we've, uh, we've been going for a couple weeks now. Uh, we've talked about a couple weeks ago how in our society doubt is in many ways a virtue. Uh, we talked about Descartes and Eastern thought of that's you know becoming more prevalent in our day of just kind of this virtue of doubt everything. Um, but in the Bible we see it's, it's not a virtue, it's a vice. But it has a complex portrayal of doubt in the Bible. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Some places the Bible is very hard on doubt, like in James. We talked about that passage in James 5 through 8. Um, and even Zechariah in um, Luke 1, uh, John the Baptist's dad, he doubts that he'll have a son and um, God makes him mute until the son is born. But other places, the Bible is more gentle on doubt, like in Jude, where it says, have mercy on those who doubt. And, um, you know, the, the man who says, I believe, help my unbelief, and Jesus still answers his prayer. So we kind of saw that there's, there's two kinds of doubt in the Bible, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll categorize it this way. There's believing doubt, and there's unbelieving doubt. Believing doubt is doubt expressed as perplexity. It's sort of this humble doubt. I've used that phrase as well, humble doubt. So Jude is kind of referring to that kind of doubt. I think um, you know Abraham has some of that in the Abraham story. The, the man who says, I believe, help my unbelief. Um, you know, Jesus, I'm going to talk about it today. Often he says to the disciples, oh, you of little faith. Um, and there's a, there's a rebuke in that, but there's a tenderness, and there's still a recognition that they have some faith. So believing doubt is just honest questions. While it's not condoned in the Bible, 
uh, because doubt can definitely become a slippery slope. It's also not harshly condemned. Um, We'll see more of that. But then there's unbelieving doubt. Doubt expressed as unbelief. This is more proud doubt. I've, I've used that phrase as well. And, and James is definitely referring to the more, someone more in that category of unbelieving doubt. And we looked at a passage in 1 Timothy that kind of had both in the same passage. Um, and then we started talking about doubt in the Old Testament, and I'll finish that today. Um, but then last week we looked at a video by a guy named Zach Eswine, and he unpacked the story of Thomas. Um, and Thomas's doubt of the resurrection. Um, and so his, his talk was how to handle doubt. So he said, first of all, bring all the faith that you have. Realize doubt is its own kind of faith. What did he mean by that? Anyone remember what he meant by that phrase? You have to believe in something. Right. So... You know, when you're doubting maybe something related to God in, in the Bible, that means you're believing something else. And so recognize that and, and um, analyze that. He says, pay attention to the pain beneath doubts, the emotional pain beneath doubts. And then he said, consider what it would be like to receive Jesus right in the worst part of your most honest questions. So... If you were here last week and you remember some of the video, anyone, um, we didn't get a chance to have, share any reactions or questions or comments, so I, I paused for any questions or comments from the video last week, if you remember. What was helpful, encouraging? I really liked how he um, pointed out how Thomas, um, even though he had this doubt and, and struggled to believe, he, he, didn't, he still was with the apostles. You know, eight days later, he really made a, a point of how he's still leaning into the community of the apostles, and they're also still being receptive of him. And he made this challenge of, um, you know, for some, their doubts will what could tend to lead him to, to, to kind of leave the church. And then he, he gave another challenge to the church. For those in doubting, look at the apostles were still receiving him. And he still felt he could, he could be a part of them even though he had these doubts. Yeah, Ray. Yeah. Were were you here? You were part of it. Yeah. Um, he he did. He more was talking personally of you working through your own. He didn't really get. I mean, he he had the general uh, application of hey. Look at Thomas was still accepted by the apostles, even though he had doubt. And so he made the general application of try to cultivate a, a church where people can bring their honest questions and be dealt with. But he didn't give specifics on how to do that. Um, I know that that I know that Zach has given talks like that, um, where he elaborates on that part more. Um, and I could send that to you if you're interested. 
but he didn't in this particular talk. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, oftentimes for people, something really challenging happens in their life. And that is, uh, that is what can lead them to, to doubt. All right. Um, you know, there's, there's more that could be said than these four things, um, you know, about handling doubt. Um, one is that truth has nothing to fear. If Christians you know can't answer your questions, it just means that those you know can't answer your questions. It doesn't mean it hasn't been wisely and helpfully addressed somewhere else. So just an encouragement to be thorough um, and you know pursue pursue truth um, in in God's word and in you know wise, helpful. Um, ways that people have, have articulated the truths of the Bible um, amidst hard questions. I think patiently is also a, an encouragement of how to handle doubt. Do it patiently. I mean, think about church history. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, um, Jack Miller, if you know Jack Miller. He's someone in the last couple decades. Francis Schaeffer, among many others. They admitted to personal wrestlings with doubt in their own life. Um, if you've heard of Jack Miller's ministry, Sonship, um, that was actually born out of a, a season of doubt that he had um, in his life. Um, and, and he, he kind of created that curriculum as a way to try to help people go deeper in their relationship with Christ. Um, you know, what the first disciples who doubted, as we will see in the New Testament, and the more recent doubters share in common is patience. Um, you know, any kind of deconstruction of previously held ideas that didn't lead them to denounce or depart from the early days of the church, faithful commitment to Christ amid and in spite of doubt was normal. Um, and we'll, we'll talk more about this in a couple weeks, but this is in contrast to typical deconstruction stories of our day when, when departure from faith often seems inevitable at the first sign of you know, dissonance. That's not true of all of them, but, but many, it's, it's sort of a, a very kind of quick reaction. Um, in one book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, uh, Alan Kreider, he says the early Christians, he shows the early Christians' slow, methodical approach to discipleship. Complete belonging in the community of faith came only after months and years of catechesis. Um, I was talking, I think it was with you, Mike Newkirk, recently. You said two years in the early church they would have catechism. And it's just, it's a, it's a neat um, picture of, of just how serious they took 
um, instruction in God's word because they knew how, how much our minds needed to um, have a firm foundation. So, you know, they didn't necessarily have a full-on attractional approach to evangelism. Earlier Christians made discipleship intentionally rigorous. Becoming a Christian and learning how to live as a Christ follower, this is quoting someone else, was too important to rush. These early Christians believed um, the transformation into Christ-likeness took time, time they were willing to commit. And that's just something that I think our culture um, and we ourselves, uh, buying into that often, um, don't always follow. And so I think in a, a patient approach with our doubts is, is a, you know, a helpful and important um, thing to remember. Uh, one author who wrote a book on doubt, he said, being post-anything is now a sign of arrival and maturity. Rethinking is valued over remembrance. Innovation is valued over continuity. Um, and so just patiently handling doubt. Um, it doesn't mean you're going to come back if you slowly, methodically. There's people who have been patient with it, and they've, they've still left, but um, I still think it's an important point to make. All right, so going back, Sorry, I'm kind of skipping all over the place. I'm just, uh, but uh, this is finishing my talk from a couple weeks ago where I was talking about doubt in the Old Testament. So we looked at doubt in the creation story, uh, doubt for, with Noah uh, in Noah's day, and then in Abraham, and then, um, you know, Moses. You think of Moses, he's most famous for his faith, and rightfully so. He was bold, he was fiery. Um, you know, he made demands of the most powerful man in the world at the time, Pharaoh. Uh, he commanded bread from heaven. He led thousands uh, of rebels through the wilderness. Um, you know, you'd say, you, you think he'd say, yep, sign me up the first time God asked him to lead Israel uh, out of Egypt. But he, five times um, at the burning bush, he doubts. And then... Um, you know, he doubts when he's first back in Egypt. He has this, this moment of, of, of doubt. And then after all that God did through the wilderness, he still doubted and struck the rock when God commanded him to speak to it. So Moses, um, the people of Israel, you know, there's that famous story in Numbers 13 where they're you know, going through the wilderness and then the spies go. And so the spies mainly, they see all the, the large people in Israel and they're like, we can't, we can't face them. Um, David in the Psalms, of course, kind of goes without saying. Um, you know, Psalm 10, Psalm 73 is a, a, a perfect example. Um, you know, at the end of Psalm 73, there's this delight. Nothing on earth I desire besides you. But before that, there was doubt. He was jealous of the wicked for their prosperity. And, um, you know, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped and stumbled. All in vain have I kept my heart um, clean and washed, my hands in innocence. He's, he's kind of feeling like I, all this is for, for nothing, following you. And then he, you know, obviously uh, moves beyond that. Um, Psalm 42, uh, the psalmist has faith, but he's, he's kind of, he's lamenting being amongst people who are doubting and, and saying there is no God. So what, what can the psalms teach us about dealing with doubt? I think one of the things is God's grace towards it. God gives us language in the Psalms of how to express our doubts back to him, which is just 
yeah, incredible. Um, the Psalms teach us not to ignore our doubts, um, and they teach us, teach us to process them with God. And Habakkuk does a similar thing. Habakkuk, we did a sermon series on it a year or two ago here. Um, and we saw, you know, doubt in Habakkuk. We saw lament, how long, and you will not hear. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? He's, he's, he's really questioning God. And then um, Jonah, he, he does that, the, you know, he finally goes to Nineveh, preaches the, probably the worst sermon that's ever been preached, you know, three words, repent and believe, and uh, thousands of people are converted. And, um, and then he goes through this, you know, emotional, I don't know what you call it, but just this emotional dissonance, and he, um, he part of it is he has just doubt of God's goodness, that he would um, help Nineveh, and uh, you see it up there. Any other examples from the Old Testament that I'm missing? I mean, there are probably others, but anything else in the Old Testament you can think of? Those are just the things I wanted to highlight. I'm just doing kind of a flyover. So. All right. Doubt in the New Testament. Um, the New Testament says a lot about doubt. Uh, a lot more, I think, than the Old Testament. But it also says a lot about faith. And so I'm going to be highlighting some things about faith as well because it obviously relates to doubt. Um, so first of all, I want to mention how one of the spiritual gifts in um, the New Testament is faith. Um, I'll talk more about spiritual gifts next year. I'm going to be doing a class on 1 Corinthians. Um, and, of course, that gets a lot into spiritual gifts towards the end of the book. But just a few kind of prefaces about the spiritual gifts. They're given to every believer by the Holy Spirit. Um, the the First Corinthians says they're a portion to each believer as the Holy Spirit wills. Um, they're not used for ourselves, but for building up of the body and, and bringing glory to Christ. Um, there are 20 gifts mentioned in five different places in the New Testament, um, but even then they're not exhaustive. Um, some gifts plainly have ceased, such, such as the founding of the apostles, the office of the apostles. Um, others are obscure and can't be clearly defined, like such as the gift of help. Um, others are clearly seen today, such as the gift of teaching, and, the, and there's a, also a gift mentioned of the gift of generosity or giving. Uh, most are things expected of all believers, so all the spiritual gifts in some ways are expected of all believers, but um, some are especially gifted in them. And so, you know, Romans talks about the gift of generosity. We are all called to be generous and to give, but some are given um, a special gift of the Holy Spirit for that. And one of the gifts mentioned is the gift of faith. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit. And then 1 Corinthians 13, he's kind of referring back to the gifts in chapter 12. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and have not love, I'm a noisy gong, clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, and there he's referring back to chapter 12 and the gift of faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. 
So I could say a lot of things there, but the gift of faith, um, he's not referring to saving faith. We all, you know, if we believe in Christ, we all have saving faith. Um, We're all expected and called to have faith in the Lord. But this is a special faith that enables a believer to trust God to bring about certain things for which he or she cannot claim some divine promise recorded in Scripture. To trust God for a certain blessing not promised in Scripture. So we're all called to have faith in the promises of God, but it's a more circumstantial faith that it's talking about. Um, It's often you think of a missionary, uh, especially a missionary who, who senses a call to a really hard place where they're going to have to do decades of ministry to really see much growth, you, you might argue that uh, someone like that has the gift of faith, where they just trust that God is going to work, um, even though not, you can't see much. That's a, probably a more extreme example, but there's, there's everyday examples as well. And so um, that's just to say that, that God has, we all are called to have faith, and, and for whatever reason, God, the Holy Spirit, works in some people more faith than others. You can also talk about temperament, um, and, and sometimes it's used as an excuse, and that's why I bring that up. Some have more of a temperament of cynicism or kind of glass half empty um, and doubt, and I, I think if you think about the people you know, that's probably ob- observing, that's a reality. That should never be an excuse, um, but uh, for some, you know, that, that is a reality. And you'll see as we talk about um, how Jesus handles doubt in the Gospels, um, he's gentle, but he also doesn't want us to stay there. And so temperament, of course, is never an excuse, although it can be helpful to understand someone. And then I mentioned this last week, but, or two weeks ago, but faith is a gift. Um, the, the, the giver of faith is God. The, the, the ultimate answer to doubt is God and um, him giving us faith. Ephesians 2.8 says that grace uh, is by grace you have been saved. And in that same passage, we see that implied in that is that even the faith that we need to believe in Christ is of God. And so um, part of how to handle doubt, I should have said this earlier, is to ask for more faith. Um, Just like the guy said, help my unbelief. All right, so that's the spiritual gift of faith. Um, The Gospels, there are so many... um, ways you can talk about doubt in the Gospels. So last week we talked about Thomas. Um, I hope that was a helpful unpacking of Thomas's doubt of the resurrection. Um, next week we're going to be watching a video by a pastor named Joe Novenson, um, and he unpacks the story of John the Baptist. How, what is the example of John the Baptist's doubt in the New Testament? Does anyone remember that story? He asks, what does he ask his disciples to ask Jesus? Are you the one who's supposed to come? This is John the Baptist of all people. And so Joe Novenson has an incredible unpacking of that story that I'm excited to share with everyone. Um, So we're going to look at that next week. Um, Oh, you of little faith. So that's a phrase you remember from Jesus. He says that to his disciples. Uh, He says it five times in Matthew and one time in Luke. Um, but the one in Luke is, is an overlap of the same story in Matthew 6. Um, that phrase, oh, you of little faith, that's one word in the Greek. Um, some think that Jesus might have made it up. Paul did that as well with some words. 
Um, it's, it's kind of a combining of little and faith into one word. And because um, there's not many examples of that word in the rest of Greek culture. And so the disciples must have really been, um, you know, a lot to handle for them to even make up a word to talk about their faith. Um, so, you know, Matthew 6, he says it, If God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow's thrown, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And that's the one that's also um, repeated again in Luke. Uh, Matthew 8, they went and woke him. This is a calming of the storm. They're out in the sea. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Matthew 14, uh, they're, they're out on the boat again. Um, and Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind... He was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out to his hand and looked, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Matthew 16, And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves or the five thousand and how many baskets you gathered? And then Matthew 17, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, and this is, um, this is after the mountain transfiguration, and they come back down and some of the disciples who had stayed, um, they had tried to cast out a demon and they couldn't. Why couldn't we cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. And I'll unpack the second part of that in a little bit. Um, I'm more focusing on the phrase little faith there. So, oh, you of little faith. Um, just a couple observations from these passages. Uh, I would have loved to, to go more deeper into all of them, but just a couple more general observations. Um, we see from these passages that doubt is often the sin beneath the sin. You know, you see the anxiety that he's talking about in Matthew 6. Um, but beneath the anxiety is doubt. It's doubt that God is going to care. Um, and you see it's, it's uh, kind of similarly their fear on the, on the waters. Um, doubt uh, leads to that fear. Um, and then uh, look at Jesus' response in all of these instances. It's clearly a rebuke. Um, but is it a harsh rebuke or a tender rebuke? I think in general it's more of a tender rebuke. You know, he meets his disciples' cares and fears and doubts with his assurance, with his peace, and with his help. And there's no indication of the disciples cowering in shame in these moments, but it's actually the opposite. They're, they're filled with more wonder when he talks to them like this, and they're, and they're drawn closer to him. Um, so he, he and however he did it, he said it in a way that they could hear it. Um, he's definitely, though, more harsh in, in Matthew 16. I mean, look at all the rhetorical questions he starts asking them. And it's, it could be um, um, instructive that it's later in Matthew. He's, you know, he's maybe needing to make the point even more clear. But also notice in these, you know, he, that guy sign was saying last week, doubt is its own kind of faith. It's that idea of doubt your doubts. And Jesus is trying to get them to doubt their doubts, if you notice. Um, in Matthew 6, consider the lilies. Look at the birds. 
Uh, he, he wants them to, to, to take note of, of their surroundings and to, to really be thoughtful in response to their doubts. And then in chapter 8 and chapter 14, he asks them, why? Why are you afraid? He's, he's wanting them to think about their doubts and to doubt their doubts. And then he's got all these rhetorical questions in chapter 16. And then also, um, just notice that Jesus is the answer to our doubts. Um, Someone uh, writing on that, he said, those of great faith have not discovered any spiritual secrets. They have not reached second-tier Christianity. They have not climbed some monastic ladder of devotion. They have simply learned, sometimes through long and painful practice, to see Jesus as the most wonderful, powerful, merciful, and faithful person in the universe. Um, And this is a a point that Martin Lloyd-Jones makes in his book, Spiritual Depression, Um, He has a whole section on doubt in his book, Spiritual Depression. He talks about um, answering your doubts with a look. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, We can only conquer our doubts by looking steadily at Jesus and, and by not looking at our doubts. The way to answer them is to look at Jesus. The more you know Jesus and his glory, the more ridiculous they will become. That's not to say, you know, ignore your doubts. Uh, We've talked about that in here already. Um, But it's simply to say this is probably the best thing to do is to lean more into Christ and the beauty of Christ and the truth of Christ and the goodness of Christ. Um, One person says in response to that Martin Lloyd-Jones quote, I know that looking to Jesus sometimes sounds like a vague and convenient substitute for more careful application, but really... Look to Jesus, not simply with a quick glance and moments of care, but as the main labor and joy of every day. Read books about Jesus. Get to know him in his offices as prophet, priest, and king. Perhaps choose a Bible reading plan that always has you reading one of the Gospels. Orient your Christian life less around a set of practices and more around a glorious person. The more you want to orient it around that person, of course practices will come from that. But let the focus be on the person of Christ. And we see in here, finally, that Jesus is gracious with believing doubt, but it doesn't mean he ignores it. Uh, he, he wants them to move beyond it. Um, in the Gospels, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, that's, you know, another famous passage. And it's, um, it's also right after the transfiguration. Um, it's the same story where he talks about faith like a mustard seed. Um, In Matthew, he talks more about that. In Mark, um, the man who had come to the disciples for him to to heal his boy, they couldn't do it. And so the man then comes to Jesus once he comes down. And, you know, just imagine the pain and desperation in this man. He's lived with this, you know, his own son is, is struggling in the way that he is with this demon and with these conditions. Um, and so just even living like that, and then having come, having at least found the disciples of Jesus, and that not working, um, and then he comes to Christ, and he um, speaks with Christ in this way. Um, uh, verse 21, and Jesus asked, how long has this been happening? He said, from childhood, and has often cast him into fire and water to destroy him, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us. And help us. And notice Jesus' response. If you can, so he's basically saying, you know, of course I can. Um, All things are possible for the one who believes. In verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, 
help my unbelief. He cries this out. So you see him kind of saying this in desperation. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. So, so much could be said about this. Um, you know, I don't want to take this passage too much out of context, um, but I do think, uh, and most uh, of the people I read on this passage think that there is definitely some principles we can draw out of that idea of I believe, help my unbelief. I think that um, that's just the reality that most of us, the place that we all live in, and, um, you know, we, we learn from that. We can ask for more belief. We can acknowledge our um, lack of belief at times. Um, and then, of course, notice that Jesus still answers his prayer, even though there's an admittance of um, some unbelief. Um, and, of course, Jesus talks about the faith of a mustard seed. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Um, The context of this passage is Jesus is trying to show the disciples how they've become proud. They had tried to cast the demon out on their own power. Earlier in the Gospels, God had given them um, the power to cast out demons. Um, but now they had tried to do it on their own. So that's really what Jesus is pointing out to them. So it wasn't the intensity of their faith that was the problem. It was the quality and the object of their faith. Only a little of the right kind of faith is necessary to accomplish the work of the kingdom. They had had faith in what? In themselves uh, to cast out the demon, not in God. Uh, The One study Bible in response to this passage, it says, the work of the kingdom depends on the power of God, not on the power or intensity of believers. The disciples' faith was probably faulty because it lay more in themselves, perhaps in using the right technique, than in God. When believers today seek to accomplish seemingly impossible tasks in the advancement of God's kingdom, God will come to their aid, enabling them to do more and greater things than they thought possible. This passage cautions believers to rely on God rather than on themselves to accomplish the kingdom's goals, but it also encourages them not to be timid in their expectation of what God can do. After all, God has done the hardest thing. He has atoned for the sins of his people through Christ. Uh, And so uh, he's he's basically saying the the, the disposition towards kingdom work is to trust in God in it um, and expect God to do great things. and, and that's kind of what, what Christ is getting at towards his disciples. And the idea of moving mountains, uh, moving mountains, of course, as a metaphor, is actually used um, by several rabbis in that day, that, that idea of moving mountains. And it was used kind of as hyperbole and a metaphor. And, um, you know, where he says, um, if you have faith, he says um, earlier, you know, that you can do anything um, with this kind of faith. John Calvin comments that, He does not mean that God will give us whatever comes heedlessly into our minds or mouths. In fact, since there's nothing more contradictory to faith than the foolish and unconsidered wishes of our flesh, it follows that where faith reigns, there is no asking for anything indiscriminately. So it's not this call to ask for anything and it's going to happen. But asking wisely. So, but also, you know, at the end of the day, mustard seed. I love that picture. And, and you know, Zach Eswine talked about it last week too. Uh, just the grace of 
Um, even faith of a mustard seed. Uh, Jesus almost has this expectation that um, faith is hard and, and um, even the best faith that we have is still small in comparison to what it could be. Um, the road to Emmaus, uh, the Cleopas and another are walking on the road to Emmaus and Jesus meets them, you remember, and what are they dealing with? They're dealing with doubt, similar to Thomas. They're just, they're just so distraught at what had just happened and the injustice of what had just happened and Jesus enters into the conversation and, um, you know, and, and there's, it's an example of um, a moment of doubt. Um, think of Theophilus, think of the book of Luke, written to Theophilus, and what did he say? Uh, one of the things he says, this is, this is not the only reason Luke wrote the book of Luke and Acts, but one of the things he says is, so that you may have certainty, so that the people may have certainty. Um, and, and, and Luke, as you know, in, in the book of Luke and Acts, they're very long, very detailed. Luke wants us to have certainty. He wants us to have lots of evidence. Uh, that, that. And so I think part of it is just Luke anticipating, the Holy Spirit anticipating our struggles with doubt. Um, you know, Zach Eswine mentioned this last week, but the disciples at the Great Commission says some of them doubted. They were still doubting uh, by the time Jesus gave them the Great Commission. And yet Jesus still gives them the Great Commission and entrusts them um, to go forward. The Apostle Paul, um, he doesn't talk about it as much. One of the places he says, walk by faith and not by sight. So Paul assumes that we will um, struggle with living by sight, um, which is a way to say we'll struggle with doubt. Uh, the letter to the Hebrews, I think one of the reasons uh, the book of Hebrews was written was to uh, especially believers who, um, with a Jewish background who were tempted to go back to Judaism. And some of that was just their doubts of Christianity. And, and is this really, is Christ really, um, is Christ really the Son of God and, and the Savior and the Messiah? And, and part of the reason for Hebrews is to kind of encourage us back to a, a deeper faith in Christ, um, as well as Revelation. Part of the context of Revelation is um, uh, persecuted believers struggling with doubt. And finally, I just want to end this um, talk on the New Testament and doubt with John 20. Um, which, of course, is the story of Thomas's doubt, which we looked at last week, but he didn't talk about this verse uh, where it says, where Jesus says in response to Thomas's doubt, and after he, you know, he touches him and he says, My Lord, my God, what does Jesus say to Thomas? Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I think this is a super relevant verse in general, but I think especially in our day for believers. Uh, skepticism and cynicism are very easy, especially in our day where it's hard to know who to trust at times. Truth has lost some street cred. So the truth of the Bible can easily take a hit if we drink the soup of our culture. And there's also materialism, the idea that this is all there is, um, and this can bring challenges to faith in the unseen. And so we can you know, functionally start thinking that seeing is believing, just like Thomas. But we're also very different to Thomas in other ways, because Thomas did get to see. He saw Jesus' hands and feet. He touched Jesus' side. He believed because he saw. But we can't do that in the same way that Thomas did. 
None of us get to see um, the incarnated Christ himself today in person. So we're happy when, for Thomas when he sees and believes, but how does that help us? How can we believe when we can't see? And the Apostle John was, of course, aware of this dilemma when he wrote his gospel. He was writing to believers who never would get to see what John saw. Um, and he was asking his first readers to do what we must do today, to believe without seeing. Um, and so John includes this um, passage of what Jesus says to Thomas. You have seen me. Because you've seen, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's an incredible statement. Not only does Jesus make it clear that you can believe without seeing, but that you are blessed if you do. I think, you know, for some, what do we say to someone who might be, um, you know, wrestling with, with a deep doubt and just, you know, if I could just see Jesus, I would believe in him. What might you say to such a person? Um, you know, we could... We could talk about how we see him through his word, and we have the testimony of his word, of course. Uh, we see him through the acts of his people. We are his hands and feet. We see him through the sacraments. We see him through all these historical facts that we can look to for the, the truth of Christ. But you can also say, if you would see Jesus, that does not guarantee that you would believe in him. In fact, many people who saw Jesus uh, had the opposite reaction. They wanted to kill him. Um, think of all the thousands of people who witnessed Christ, witnessed his miracles, um, and yet still didn't believe. And I think that's, uh, you know, we've, we've made that point about the garden. You know, Adam and Eve had all of that in the garden, yet they still had doubt. The, the people of Israel saw all the things that God did coming out of Egypt, and yet they, some of them still struggled with doubt. Um, and so even those who got to see Christ in person, even not all of them believed. Um, so seeing is not believing. Just look at those who saw Jesus and did not believe. And think about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus um, in Luke, where um, you know, the, the, the rich man just says, oh, please go tell others about this. You know, my friends back home, and Jesus says, they already have been told in the prophets and in the writings. Um, Romans 10 says, faith comes from hearing. Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. Any, that's, that's all I got on doubt in the New Testament. Any questions or thoughts? Did we wrap up here? Yes, Mike. Yeah. Is. Thank you. Yeah, Michael. Um, you're saying, is it their fear or is, what's the other option? Right. 
Right. Gotcha. So this is Matthew 8. Matthew 8. Um, and they woke him saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? So you're asking, um, is Jesus rebuking their fear? Or is he um, rebuking them for coming to him? Would he still have rebuked them? Yeah, I would. I would. I mean, I welcome any other thoughts, but I would guess that he's um, uh, rebuking their fear in that moment. Um, but that's that's a that's an interesting question. I don't don't have immediate thoughts. Yeah, they're, they're kind of implying you don't care. I mean, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Implied in that is you're letting us perish. You don't care. Yeah. No, I, I. That's where I would go with that. That's that's how I read it. Does that answer your question, son? Yeah. Mhm. Gotcha. Yeah. Right. No, that's true. It's kind of how, how we ask or how, how it comes out. All right, I'm so sorry we got to end there. Um, Father, we believe, help our unbelief, uh, help us to um, grow deeper in our faith, Lord. Thank you that we are blessed if we do not see and believe, and, and that is our reality, Lord, in this, uh, this part of the story. And we thank you for giving us faith, and we ask for more faith, that we would be a people who um, live in this world and in our neighborhoods um, as people of faith who, who know that you are coming back again, that you are making all things new, and that would that give us a confidence and a joy and in in, um, an infectious faith uh, and an irresistible faith to those around us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.